Direwolf Podcast. This is Christy, and I am here. It's Monday. Well, it's Sunday night, and uh, I just drove through the snow from Oklahoma City to Austin, Texas, and it's snowed the whole way, so I am curled up in an Airbnb thinking about this podcast thinking about this week ahead, thinking about what I'm going to do in Texas, thinking, lots of thinking, lots and lots of thinking, (laughs) lots of deciding, um, for the first time in a long time this week, like, I even, like, have been deciding about the fate of comedy and what that's going to even look like over the next decade ahead for myself, and, trying to think as long-term as possible, especially with the events that have gone down in Washington, D.C., and some events that went on last week. I might talk about them at some point, but for now, I'm just going to say I'm here in Austin. (laughs) So I am really excited for today because I have a really special guest on I actually met this young man at a show officially. I've I've met Trevor along the way in Los Angeles, just kind of in passing or when I went to the Sycamore Tavern to do shows or open mics or see friends perform. And the last time I was officially there, I think was in February of 2020 before everything got closed down so it's really kind of a bittersweet as Trevor even said time for a lot of comics that have relocated from Los Angeles to Texas and I was very lucky I was at a show called the G-Spot and it's hosted by Mary Ellen Helen McCarthy and Mary Helen um, had me on the lineup. It was a Christmas show. I think it was right before Christmas. And I, Trevor was there to watch the show. And I met him. Uh, and he, we just uh, hit it off right away. Like, he's so freaking awesome. Um, it was just really nice to talk to somebody about Los Angeles and our experiences there. So... I did ask him, hey, will you do a podcast with me? Just because I am missing LA so much. And I know a lot of people are missing LA that are out, have been out there. Or even if you've been displaced from your place of business or your residence, um, this is definitely an episode where you can identify with that. Because Trevor uh, was the producer and operator of the dojo of comedy which is a club that was located in the upstairs of the sycamore tavern and then last year it actually got a two rooms there were two rooms um one downstairs and then the club upstairs and he has a few other locations as well and the dojo of comedy really meant so much um when i moved to la the Sycamore Tavern was one of the first places I went to do stand-up um, and check out, and it had always been on my route, my routine. Um, I really loved the dojo. 
and officially like got on a show in 2019 and was going to produce or in line to produce a show um a monthly show there um I was shopping around an idea and Trevor thought it was cool and he was really cool to me so I just really appreciate um you know club owners are really open to different ideas and um he he's always been super supportive of comedians and has always provided a space for comics to grow and learn and also uh this episode I think really highlights you know Trevor's life and all the ups and downs that he's gone through both with um you know his sobriety journey his journey with his family and uh it it was recorded at a coffee shop on my phone but for those who listen for the asmr this episode is super duper asmr so if you're here for asmr this is as asmr as it gets so without further ado i would love to introduce trevor kevelo That's a good thing to know. I dropped my phone on the regular and it's still alive right now. Yeah. Yeah. They're 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 made better, but at the same time, they're not. It's a weird. It's like this thing just decides to like not function correctly, and it's always at roughly the same time at night. Because I have Sprint and Sprint merge with T-Mobile, and my phone's just been fucking weird since. And I'm like, yeah, it's like. The transition from LA yeah, to here. Yeah. Mine has been weird too. I and it's, it's like it, it got into a cult and it's like not the same anymore. <laughs> My phone's in a cult and it's disconnecting from me like in Scientology. Welcome to the Austin coffee cult. Yeah, really. <laughs> that was one of the things I wanted to do out here was I was looking into eventually opening up a cafe and I had never been to Austin before I moved here. And then I came here and I was like, oh my God, they're fucking everywhere. I'm going to be okay. It's just the right place. Yeah. How are you doing business-wise? These birds are crazy. Yeah, I forgot I don't the know. name of them. I, uh, you know Al B, right? Al Bahami? You don't know Al B from LA? He's actually from Houston. But he's a... Uh, he helped me run the dojo. He was like... I called him my consigliere, my right-hand man. Um, he warned me about these birds. I forgot the name of them. He said that they're fucking everywhere. <laughs> Like, worse than pigeons and homeless people combined. <laughs> yeah, they just, like, walk up to you. Because they're so aggressive. And then you start thinking about them, and you look at them, and I, I'll stare at them for, like, a half hour, and I'm doing something. And I just, I see, because they're dinosaurs. Yeah. You know? So when you look at it, you're like, they're, like, fucking little dinosaurs running around. I it's think, so cool. I think it's, I was at a place with chickens this weekend. Yeah. And I was like, those motherfuckers, if they were huge, oh, they would have yeah. eaten me. Yeah. They Chickens wouldn't care. They'll eat each other, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they eat each other. They like attack. They like jump up and attack. Yeah. So. Yeah, they're fucking dangerous little fucks. But how's Austin been for you? Austin's been good. Um, the, the comedy community here, which is small and growing rapidly, has embraced me, which has been nice. Um, there's been a lot of positivity. Um, I know it's like a weird time for. Austinites and the people kind of like flooding in by the by the droves as they say but comedy wise it's uh, 
it's not like a ton of LA comics and, and New York comics like people are saying. You, 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 you're like, everyone's moving here. I'm like, who? Tech people are moving here. Tech people have been moving here for years. I'm like, I'm, I'm out in mics and shows all the time and it's not like a hundred LA comics have just, just like showed up on a bus. So yeah. there's like, you know, this, uh, this talk and chatter, but when I'm actually out there, I don't see, I see some and I interact with them. Because most people from LA had done like the dojo mics, the annex. So I'm like, hey, I'm Trevor. I ran the dojo. Like, oh, hey, man. Because a lot of people, a lot of the micers in LA I didn't meet. I was just too busy. I was just, I'm like, I'm running the show upstairs, sometimes two shows, and I'm running the restaurant, and then I can't go in the mic room because it's like I just don't have the time for it. I, I drop in, I'd watch like certain comics, or if a comic asked me to watch their set, I'm like, fuck yeah. I was like, just let me know when you're up so I can go in there. Like, you know, but 99% of the time that I stepped foot in that building, I was uh, managing the entire restaurant while I ran the club. So it was, there was a, I was pulled in a lot of different directions often. But uh, it's been good. Um, I'm up north, kind of by Cedar Park, which is nice. It's a good balance um, to kind of get away from the city and the, the kind of but it's not it's really not as crazy as I thought it'd be I think that's a big reason is because of the quarantine shit or shut down whatever the fuck it's called now yeah yeah so prison prison yeah (laughs) the regime change yeah I I, (laughs) it's not too bad like I'm like I've been downtown a lot and I'm like I could probably live downtown I just didn't want to at first because you know I don't party anymore I'm getting older I'm just not it's not part of my life and now then I'm like man if things work out here the way that they're going to and kind of on that path like I want to buy something I want to own like either you know property or something eventually so you know and they're like, this is the year to do it. Like, this is the year where it's going to, they say it's going to, like, explode. I have friends that, you know, are telling me about their property and how much it's it's jumped in the past five years. And that's just with the tech companies coming here. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. I was like, do I buy a house and property or do I buy a condo? I mean, I'm single, no kids. It's like, why buy a house in the suburbs? Yeah. You know, why don't I just embrace that Playboy lifestyle? And live in the city. <laughs> Be a city folk. Yeah. In a country town. Yeah, it's like, well, I did. I did six years. I lived in the heart of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Well, one year I lived away from Hollywood, but most, the rest of the time I lived right in the heart of Hollywood. I lived less than half a mile from the dojo for almost the entire time I lived there. Yeah. So. And then originally I'm from Chicagoland, but I'm from the suburbs, but a big suburb. So, you know, and I was in the city quite a bit, but I wasn't a city boy, a suburban kid, you know? So. Well, you wrote a post a couple days ago for, yeah. I guess it was like New Year's about, what is it, the 101? Yeah, the 101. Yeah. Um, and it made me cry, <clears throat> dude. I like welled up. Yeah. It's really, really sweet. I, I actually had to write it off Instagram to write it right, to write it right. And when I was writing it, I literally started crying because I was I was saying goodbye. Yeah. You know, and that was um, that place helped me, especially after I got sober. Because when you get sober in LA, it's weird, but it's common too. I found out and stay. And one thing is to get sober, another thing is to stay sober. 
I didn't have anywhere to go before or after work. People usually go to bars or clubs or, you know, something like that, have a couple drinks at a bar. I didn't want to do that anymore. I, I basically ran a huge sports bar and had my own comedy club inside of it, so uh, I didn't want to go somewhere that's the same thing, the same element. Like, I would go to Barney's and hang out sometimes because I like Barney's. They were cool to me. They had Heineken Zero. So if I want an ice cold beer after a long day, I could have it. Um, but I also didn't want to, I got sick of just being in a bar all the time. Mm. So I just started going to the 101. I went there when I was, the first time I moved to LA, I was 22. And I've talked about this, so. Um, but when I was, I got mentored by uh, Bob Odenkirk when I was really young. He, uh, he kind of took me under his wing. Um, talked to me a lot about the industry. Um, I moved out there to work on a movie with them. It fell through because the movie was being shot in Atlanta. So I just kind of hung out for a while and I took off. But I remember going to the 101 and I was like, you know, because I think that's where some of Swingers was shot. And I loved the movie Swingers as a kid. So I was like, oh, I got to go to all the cool places from the movie Swingers and from this movie and that movie and go take pictures there. And this one, you had like, like a disposable camera, you know. So I had all these, I had all these cool pictures of all these places, and uh, the 101 though, I was like, it's, it had this, just it felt, because it was an old school diner, like the decor was from that time. It wasn't like someone came in and tried to make it like an old diner. It what really was, you know, and it lasted and it was clean. Excuse me, and it had that cool like stone brick wall in the back that looked like uh in the dining area that looked like um like something like a house from the 70s or 80s you know or even the 60s i don't know but it was so fucking cool and i remember going there a couple years later when i was in town i kept going there and i was like this and then people were like that's where all the celebrities hang out that's where people that are in the industry hang out and then one day i was like i was there all the time i was there five days a week like legit and I realized, I'm like, oh, I'm one of those guys now. I'm one of the industry guys. You know, not at, like, the huge level, but I went there to work, to do business, to have meetings, to do stuff like that. And the very last day they were open, I was their last customer. Uh, I became friends with the staff. Uh, Ebony, she was the head server slash manager. Um, we keep in touch. We became friends about two years ago. I, I bring family and friends in there. Like I said, I go there before or after my shifts. I was there sometimes five days a week. We became really good friends. We talked all the time. We, and we keep in touch. We message each other almost every day. I send her funny memes and videos to keep her, you know, positive. Because she's having a, you know, that was her life. That was her identity. And I, I understand that. Because in L.A., my identity was the dojo, Sycamore. And when that was officially, like back up for sale I'm like it's like why do I want to what do I do and plus California is just a fucking disaster now so especially LA County but uh yeah I wrote that post and I, I had to rewrite it a few not rewrite it but I had to edit it a few times because it was I was just trying to gauge my my emotions right and, and, and but also be honest about it and not have to like tweak it like I'm, I'm not writing for a, a paper you know or a magazine or a website i'm writing from the heart on a post and you know i had to make sure that i kept that kept it that way because i love the place you know i went there after uh 
I was I had a relationship with Anthony Bourdain and not sexual, <laughs> <laughs> which would have been cool, but no, not that I'm gay, but it's Anthony Bourdain. Um, but I mean, he's doing he, he yeah, tells you. yeah, they, you know, Marlon Brando and Richard Pryor, you know, they they went at it, but we had a an thing and acquaintance and when he died I went there and I just sat at the corner and had a milkshake and just cried because I was like so upset because we had talked about some other stuff doing other stuff together one day and it was he was such an influential person and then last year I lost my brother then a couple months later I lost my dad and my cousin in the same day different situations and that's where I went to, to seek comfort you know that's where I went to to feel at home when I didn't really have a home. My home was Sycamore Dojo. When I didn't want to be there, that's where I went. Because I had all, I lived in like seven different apartments in LA. And none of them ever felt like home. It was all just, you know, subleases for up to a year or less. So I went there and they were always cool to me. Even the night staff that didn't know me that well, but knew, you know, said hi, knew exactly where I sat. I was sat in a certain area because I have a, I have a phobia now because getting attacked almost three years ago so I have a phobia of certain ways I sit and stand so you know man it's a fucking great place I mean it you cap you captured kind of what's going on in LA in a very like succinct beautifully written post mm -hmm. but it was just more it's it's like far more than a post it's the end of an era yeah and even with the dojo, I, the first place I went in LA when we drove in, yeah, was the Sycamore Tavern. Yeah, just Aww. because I knew they had an open mics there. Yeah, and that's where we stopped, and that was in 2018. Or okay. Two, yeah, 2018. Yeah, and it's just so interesting because even, you know, when I moved back in January of 2020. Um, it was still one of the places like I when I when you move two rooms to two rooms you went from one room to yeah. the downstairs room and I was like oh my god they're like doing something here yeah. like this that also felt like a place that I could go to be safe and yeah. like workout material yep. so it's just it's fascinating like how the universe like has people like come together at specific times because yeah when I met you a couple, like two weeks ago it was yeah. like holy shit like I'm if you only knew like your place of your home yeah was like almost like another home for so many that, of us that that's exactly the the intention I wanted to do um, my intention was to build not just a club but a scene or a vibe and that's what Sam and I talked about when we launched it Sam actually had like he created the name the dojo and that's because we're both, he's a big MMA fan, as am I. I worked with the MMA industry for like 10 years. Um, and he wanted to create a workout room for like the big tour, like the, the, the headliners and everybody really. So it, it the first year it like grew rapidly because, you know, within six months we had Rogan there and then we had you know, he's kind of like the gatekeeper. When he like gives the blessing, it's like then all of a sudden it's like, okay, if this guy likes it, then it's gotta be good because he just knows comedy. And Rogan's a, he's got a, a an eye for other things other than comedy. He loved the space. He told Sam, he goes, this could be the next like big 
like the big bar show. There was a big bar show back in the day, uh, before my time, that Jay Davis ran uh, right by the Comedy Store, which is where Dane Cook kind of became famous. Is it Coach and Horses? No, it's closed now. Uh, Dublin's. It was Dublin's. Dublin's, there was a, I, I'd never been there. I'd been there, but not to the comedy shows, but they ran uh, like a huge bar show that was like the number one bar show in town. And that's where Dane Cook would always come in and close it out or whatever and do tons of time and it like blew him up. And uh, Rogan was like, that could be like the next Dublin's. And it kind of, that upstairs area turned into its own, the actual dojo turned into really to a club. It wasn't like a bar or hangout. We just, I just ran shows or events, private events, and that was it. It wasn't a hangout space. That was downstairs. But I, I, I was actually, I'll be honest, uh, and a few people know this, not a lot, but I was very hesitant about bringing open mics there. Very hesitant because of uh, the, what I had seen at other open mics and how it can get so, um, not ruthless that's not the right, right word but uh just there's a there's a a thing with mics in town that i had seen when i was out and i was like i don't want that at my club mm -hmm. but i also kind of like got over my ego and i was like this isn't about what i want this is about the art form this is about comedy this isn't about what i what i want and I was like, I have to do it. And one day I decided to, I started putting wheels in motion. And uh, Isabel Herman was a comic and I hired as a server bartender who was one of my like essentially resonant comics because she worked there. We went out and I said, I'm going to do it. And she's like, all right. And we went to uh, Santee Alley and we went shopping. We spent, I think it was New, uh, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day there, New Year's. I don't know when it was. Christmas Eve or Christmas Day we spent at Santee Alley shopping about hundreds of dollars worth of fabrics and all this stuff and she's incredibly talented with a lot of different things but she's she made like she like made the drapes like the, the you know the and and like the sashes and all that she she stitched that and all that and we, we put these like we took like pvc pipe and like blocked out the windows on certain areas so that it could be darker in the room and it was like oh we put a lot of work in and she did a lot of this like manual labor she brought in her own stage that she had that was hers that she built she brought it in and one day there it was dojo annex you know and i and my goal was literally to excuse me to create a vibe a scene you know i didn't i, I didn't want to take from anywhere i wanted to support and at that, you know, at that time, comedy was as hot as it's ever been in its life form, I believe, stand-up comedy. So there's plenty of room. And I worked hand-in-hand -hand with a lot of the people at the comedy store. I was, I was, I never, I knew that that's the big dog. And I worked a lot with the comedy store comics and the staff there. And if they ever wanted to get up on a show or do a mic or run a show, I said, come to me, I'll take care of you. And same with the improv people, too. Um, they came to me, they ran shows at the dojo, their own shows, because they couldn't run them at, at the improv. Um, Bear Grenade, I don't know if you know who they are, Adam Friedman, Friedman, is that his name? A couple of guys, they had this show at the dojo, and it grew so much that they moved it to the comedy store at the Belly Room. 
but they had their first show was at the dojo and it grew to that and it became like a really cool show they put on a great show there so um that's kind of what we were you know and it, what, what we became was like this kind of like fourth wheel of, of hollywood comedy clubs we were more of a spare wheel because <laughs> we weren't as powerful but but you know here's the thing like your room reminded me a little bit of a mix of like the belly room with a little bit of the way the original room feels yeah like the way that it's like dark like yeah that dark you, like i don't know how to explain it but that dark is like the dark i live for the ceiling yeah the way the ceiling, the ceiling. Was, yeah like it was rafters yes open yeah yes. i love it, it. it's like it was like a basement but upstairs yes that's what it felt it felt, yeah. it felt like a new york sort of vibe with the belly yeah. room um and I appreciate that. I just, I think yeah. you need to know, like, how I, much that was appreciated. It, it makes me feel good because <laughs> that was my goal, and I achieved it, and continue to achieve it, and it, and it continued to grow and grow. And you know, pre-Rona, my 2020 was like, I had stuff on the books that were great shows, and I had, I was working with a lot of big people, like, I don't want to say big, but really big projects. Um, I was going to bring in some other stuff to do there that was going to like put us on the map in other categories, but still keep it a club. And that's essentially why I, I also opened up the downstairs annex is because in case something big came up and wanted that space, I could always have the second room. I was like, you know, it was an annex. It's exactly what it, you know, the name. It was like an auxiliary room in case I had to move a show downstairs if something came in because I didn't own the property. I didn't, I wasn't an owner. I own the energy, you know, and I manage the space. And if there was ever uh, a money thing, you know, sometimes my owners would say, I have somebody that wants to come in and has money and wants to use the space. And I'm like, well, I'm booked out. I like, well, is it going to be sold out? Because at the end of the day, business is business. And it's like, this is a huge amount of, uh, you know, sales for the, for the business. And we can't turn that away because at the end of the day, it's business. It's called show business for a reason. It's not called show play. It's not called playtime. Like, yeah. I had a very hard time explaining that to a lot of the people that didn't grasp the concept that I, at the end of the day, I did have to be, I was responsible for numbers. And making sure that it was generating enough pro of a profit to keep it open, you know, and it was a, it was a difficult, very difficult. The amount of shit I put up with and dealt yeah, with and honest, daily, not just with comics and producers and promoters and bookers and, but the other end, the behind the scenes stuff with, and my owners were fucking amazing. They just said, do what you want. They literally said, just do it. I told them, I go, I can turn downstairs into a comedy club. I can knock out the walls. It can be a real room. That was the goal of 2020, by the way, was to knock out the wall downstairs in the annex room that was like a partition wall that was, and it was a, uh, it wasn't load bearing so I could do it, was to knock out that wall and open up that entire room into another room. Still keep the mics there full time, but open it up to a second room that could fit 80 people just like upstairs but downstairs and that was the goal and i had it all in my head how i wanted it real simple very little money would have been involved to to kind of like remodel it and it would have looked really fucking cool but life yeah life brought you here and i have to accept those things
and accept the things you cannot change. Yeah. Well, you're an Aries. I am. And you're built to be a warrior. What did you call yourself? Like a war? What uh, did you call uh, yourself? I'm an artistic asshole. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't say asshole at all. I can be a prick. I'm actually less than I was before. It takes a lot for me to turn into an asshole now. Before, when I drank, I get a, I get after that third Jameson, nine times out of ten, I'm your best friend and we're having a great time. But... I could get I could get fucking mean when I wanted to, and it wasn't mean. It was when you push me in a corner. Mean. Now I've been fucked with out here a couple times, and I just like I don't. I introspectively look at the situation. I'm like, this isn't about me. I'm a good dude. I'm a nice guy. I'm like I do things for people. I help people. I help I help the universe in any way I can. It's not about me. What was it that triggered the asshole though? Like, was it? pent-up rage. I think it was rage. I think yeah. it was uh, maybe genetics because my dad was a rageaholic. My dad and my dad and I had an amazing relationship but when I was really young it was not great. Um, it was, it's not that it wasn't great. He just was incredibly no, I mean, abusive I and, I, and there was a lot of anger and rage and it didn't come, for him it didn't come from alcohol. He wasn't an alcoholic nor was my mom. It was just, he's an off-the-boat angry German and had seven kids and probably regretted it every day because he had, he, you know, he owned a, my family owned their own business and they're small business owners. You know, I come from a family of small businesses. You know, that's all it is. And, you know, some family broke off and wanted to work for a big company because the grind was just too much. And then my brother took over my dad's business when my dad got sick and wanted to retire. And he, flourish the business you know that's doing well now because it's just work ethic and doing good work that's the other thing doing good work it's one thing to work hard you can yeah. work really hard but if your work is sloppy or not that good but putting in good work taking your time maybe taking an extra hour to do something to do it right it goes a long fucking way you know and it's a dying art form yeah, it is. A friend of mine uh, that I worked with at a bar, Ox, Rick Lucero, not related to the band. Uh, <laughs> we used to text each other all the time. They're like, hard work is a dying art form. And it, it is, you know. And, and it's just, we live in a society where things are, it used to be, I remember seeing comics back in the day talk about, you know, everything needs to be done now, now, now. And, and uh, you know, uh, was it microwave, microwave dinner, remote control, like this back like 80s, 90s jokes, but they make even more sense now. I, I get annoyed with my phone if my text doesn't go through fast enough. A text. A text. Yeah. I get annoyed when it's like spinning and I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm like, oh, that's right. Well, it's also a three-year-old phone, which is like ancient. And I just have to remember like, it's not that big of a deal. The text takes an extra five seconds. It's when I don't get the text for days. That's when I get annoyed, <laughs> which happens. That can happen too. Um, but I do, I don't know, I was thinking about so, was it always an alcohol? Was alcohol your thing? Yeah. Trying okay. Alcohol was my thing. Um, I did, I started doing Coke when I moved to LA, but I only did it for three years. I'd never done it before that in my life. Never smelled it, never licked it, never touched it. Moved to LA, it was like the second second night I was there. I think it was New Year's Eve. Uh, I ended up blowing lines with my buddy, and he thought I did coke because I ran bars for so long and worked in bars, and he just assumed I was, you know, accustomed to that lifestyle. Was not. 
and it was fun, a lot of fun, and then it became like, this isn't fun anymore. Um, and I didn't, after about three to six months, it just became like a thing I did when I drank too much, or was just something to do. I didn't get like hooked into it, but I went through waves of it. So for the three lousy years I did coke, it was like just up and down. Um, I quit, the first time I got high smoking weed, I was 31. And it happened to be like right before New Year's, ironically, that's weird. Um, excuse me. Was that 10 years ago? Yeah, ago? Wow. roughly, yeah. Look at where you were now, yeah. there and then now. Yeah. Holy shit. Alcohol has always been my vice. Um, and it's ironic because I had, uh, when I, when people back in Chicago found out I was doing coke, there was like this weird, uh, these weird rumors that were going around about it and it was odd because it's like, I'm like, I was like 36 or 7 at the time and it's like, so what? You know, and it, it got really weird but it's like, my problem was with alcohol, it wasn't with coke. I just did coke so I could drink more and stay up and talk and hang out because it was fun and then it just became not fun because it's just such a, such a nasty drug. It's so lame. I look at it, I'm like, it's so lame. It's just like, because all you want to do is do more. You don't do it to just have a good time. Yeah. Like, no one does that to have a good time. You do. You have a drink to have a good time. You get baked to have a good time. You, you do that to, like, enjoy something. Go. No. If you have to go in the bathroom and do it, it's probably not a good thing. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Anything yeah. you have to do in the bathroom is probably not the best thing to do in public. So, hide it from people. Actually, LA is different. They don't hide it. No one hides it there. No, not in LA and a little bit not here either. No, here like it's people are doing it. It's here. very prominent. Yeah. Here more so than well, I'd never been here, so I had zero uh idea of what Austin was about. I just heard I've always heard it was a really cool t city. It's got a very it's got a great art scene. Um and my friend Isabel, she moved here, Isabel Herman, and she kind of put it in my head months, you know, months before I moved here, because I told her I was looking at moving to Austin, Phoenix, or Nashville, and I was leaning at, I was looking at Phoenix first, because <clears throat> I went to northern Arizona on this little, like, journey, you know, to find, to find something, to find myself kind of thing, get away from L.A., and I microdose the whole time, five days. Every morning I wake up, have coffee, have take like a little bit of, you know, mushrooms and kind of like reset, reground myself with, with the universe. And I did some writing and just kind of got like reconnected with things. And that's when I was driving back. I ended up going from LA, then I went to uh, Sedona. No, I went to Jerome first then Sedona, then Flagstaff, then the Grand Canyon. Oh, wow. So, and then I went to the Grand Canyon, and I, I figured it all out. You know, it, it hit me. And then, and I also got to grieve all the deaths that I didn't grieve in 2019, because I got I had a bad year. I had a great year professionally, but personally, whew, I had a rough year. I was back and forth in Chicago five times in a few months. Just yeah. of, do you feel like because the thing about death and mushrooms is I always feel like mushrooms know how much medicine you need no yeah. matter how much you take Yeah. so they give you as much as you need Yeah. do you feel like the mushrooms helped you to kind of sit with that yeah. a little bit more and the thing is yes uh, it, 
it did. And that was the goal was to sit with myself and, and grieve this. And there was times where I was grieving and I wasn't on, I didn't take them. But I had kind of like was like opening myself up again emotionally to these things that I was just going through the motions when these, these people passed away. I was going through the motions. I was like, all right, I had to get back to work. Like, you know, get the cry out, do my own I need to do and get back to work. And I didn't really let myself like get to an emotionally vulnerable place where I could get through that. So there's times where I was in my car just bawling my eyes out. And I could, I just had these weird uh, emotional connections to parts of the, what I drove through, to songs, to, you know, stuff that was happening in, in, my, in my head and not in a creepy, weird way, but like thoughts, feelings, you know, and just, but working through it, getting through all of it, not stopping, not resisting, allowing it. And when I was at the Grand Canyon, it was when like I had this un unbelievable moment of, of uh, whatever you call it, trip. You still calling it tripping? Tripping, journey, journey, yeah. Finding God. Yeah, I, exactly. I had this moment with God where I was up there, and so much started to connect. And I, it was weird because I had I'd been confronting death since I almost died, and that's why I got sober. So I had a couple years, about a year or two ago, I was meditating, and, and I had the same feeling. I wasn't, I wasn't, I had never taken mushrooms at that point. First time I took mushrooms was a year and a half ago. So I'm new to drugs, by the way. <laughs> Alcohol has been one thing. But medicine. I'm, medicine, yeah. Drugs and medicine are two different things. I do not consider mushrooms a drug, but uh, some of my friends that are just too um, obtuse think that they are because it's not prescribed by the government yet. Yet. Yet, because it's... It needs to be. Oh, it's it's literally, out of everything I've ever put in my body, mushrooms is by far the best thing for me that I've ever... Everything, by far, other than maybe water or really good burger. But no, mushrooms, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but I was up there, and I was just... Everything started to connect, and I was uh, I was looking. I like looked down for a little bit, not like in a weird way, but like looking down the Grand Canyon. And I was just like, I wasn't like, what if I die? What if I jump? It wasn't that type of feeling. It was, you're gonna be okay. This is how things are. You got through your own shit. You'll get through this shit, and you just have to. It was like you kind of just. I just had to trust. I had to have faith in myself. It's not trusting essentially someone or something, but I have to trust myself with my actions, with my choices. And that's what it was, was trusting myself. Because you're looking over, a, you know, this big old hole in the wall or hole in the ground, and you're like, wow, if I fall, I wonder if I could live. If I fall, would I die? If I fall, would I catch? Like, you th things like that happen, and they're not suicidal stuff, reality. But it wasn't about that. It was about me failing. And it's like, heaven, you know, I've Dude. failed so much that failure is comfortable. It's so comfortable. I find, here's the thing that I find incredibly interesting is that you went to a giant hole. Yeah. That was your, like, place of choice. Yeah. That is so fascinating how yeah. people pick where to go. Like, yeah. I was out in the middle of the desert. Yeah. Just by myself. 
like how can I deal with vastness, but yours is how can I deal, and there's two different types of well, vastness basically. Exactly. An abyss. I, I wrote a piece of that because I I used to go to the ocean all the time to reset. But the difference between the ocean and the desert is you can't just go in the ocean. You get to stand there. I'm not a fucking millionaire. I don't have a yacht. I can't take my boat, charter my boat with my captain and go out on the ocean with a bunch of, you know, Brazilian models. It's like the desert. You can go into the desert. You go to people that move to the desert. Don't go there to, to move there. You go to the desert to find yourself or find the answer, but you go to the desert to, to leave, Yeah. you know, to leave whatever it was that you were a part of. I have family that live in the fucking middle of nowhere because they just don't want to be around society or societal um, stuff, like the the hierarchy of society. They just go and this is what we want to, this is what I want to do. And I wrote this thing where it's the difference between like, you know, like I said, going to the ocean is beautiful and it's great, but you can't, you can swim in it and that's it, but you can't go out there. But the desert, when I was in Jerome and it was, I woke up for the sunset and I, I watched the sun, uh, sunset and I wake up for the sunrise and I woke up for the sunrise and I sat there and I was like, I looked out and I was like, that's fucking amazing. It was almost or more beautiful to me than the ocean, yeah. honest to God. And I, and I think I, and I'm not taking away from, you know, I don't mean to offend the ocean if they ever listen to this. <laughs> if the ocean is listening. If the ocean is listening, I don't mean to offend you, but I don't think that the the desert gets the, the justice it deserves, you know, and yeah. being out there because it's brutal. I was, I was driving through the desert and it was 109 degrees and I had my windows down. I didn't have the AC on. I had my windows down. I was on a white t-shirt, gym shorts. And I was singing at the top of my lungs in my car. And I was just having the best time of my life. And it was like, okay. And I was finding myself. And like I said, I was grieving. You know, I spread some of my dad's ashes in the Grand Canyon. Um, I felt like my brother was literally in my car at a certain point. A couple times. I, I kept looking over. I'm like, are you here? I felt him there. And I was like, this is fucking eerie. Like, he's here with me. Somewhere or another. That was creepy. But, uh, yeah, when I was up there and kind of tripping, meeting God again, I should say, um, I was confronting death again. And I had the same exact feeling of when I, the first time, not first time, but the first time that when I meditated, I hit like a peak. Like, I peaked in meditation, completely sober, nothing, like, no whatever, no medicine, nothing. And I, like, had this high. But then it got really uncomfortable for me because I started to get scared. I started to cry as I was meditating, trying to figure out. I was scared of death and dying because I almost did. I mean, I was literally on an operating table, you know, praying and begging for my life. And I felt that again, those emotions. And the same thing kind of happened when I was in Grand Canyon is I had that um, fear. And my fear is not accomplishing enough before I die. It's not the fear of dying. It's a fear of not doing as much as I wanted to do. I joke now and say if, if I die today, I, I live one fucking hell of a life. I've had in, dinner with Anthony Bourdain. I started a comedy club in Hollywood. Like, I... I I've worked with some of the coolest and best entertainers in the world, and now it's like I've 
sat in the box seats with the UFC owners, you know, it's like I had sat in their personal box seat. Like I've done cool shit, but I just want so much more. And I think I'm at, I'm kind of at that turning point where I think it has to do with age as well, that I want to create something for me, but for everyone at the same time, which is what the dojo was. I went up, every show is in my contract, but I would ask for five minutes. I didn't ask to headline. I didn't ask for 20. I didn't, I wasn't greedy. I was very humble because I knew I was around some of the best known and unknown comedians in the world. And I'm not going to go up there and act like the boss. But when it came to the business part, it was a different story. I was like, this is how I run things. If you don't like it, you don't have to work with me. It's nothing personal. We just won't do business. This is how we think, do things. I send people, it was, it, I removed the word contract because that's kind of a, not the word. It was a expectations list is what I said. And it's like, this is kind of what I expect from every promoter and booker. And the thing was, I, most of my shows, I booked independent producers and promoters. They booked the comics. So all those shows through the dojo, I was like an executive producer. I oversaw everything and just managed everything from the top. And then I would have a handful of my own shows a month. Um, or I would co-produce some shows and help people that were especially new that needed help. And I love doing that. I've had people out here reach out to me and ask if they, if, you know, and I go, I will give you as much advice as you want or as little. And I won't expect a fucking dime. I won't even expect to be on the show. I want to help people. Like, if you have a lineup already and you just need help with something, like just, I'm a text away. And right now, I've got a lot of free time. So, and I just want to help people get better. Because people help me, but... I also, the help I've gotten in my life has been given like a blank canvas and I have to be creative at the same time as I have to be, I don't want to say business savvy because it's like a sexy word and I'm not, yeah, I'm, I know how to do, do business and run business, but I'm not, I'm no Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Let's put it that way. It's <laughs> called small business owner. Yes. I'm a small and that's the important part because you know, I'm a small business owner, but it's small and and tedious, you know? Yeah. It's, like, constant work, but, you know, it's not bringing in, like, I don't have a mansion. Yeah, like. not bringing in the book. Not even a McMansion. Not even a mini McMansion. <laughs> not even a mini house. It's, it's just, not it's, a shack. yeah, it's just, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an occasional Airbnb is what it is. All right, I'll be honest. <laughs> But yeah. wait, I want to ask you, were you sober when you got attacked? No, I was fucked up. Okay. I was, uh, after my blood got taken, because I went, uh, I went to the ER. I think, yeah, I went to the ER, but when they uh, pulled my blood and told me I was at like 0.23 or something, I was fucked up, but I also was doing, I was doing coke. And as everyone says, oh, this is great Coke, which means it's usually shitty Coke. The Coke I did was actually really good. So I was, like, really alert. But then I was also getting baked, too. I was getting stoned. So I, I call that the Hollywood trifecta. Or the, <laughs> the Hollywood handshake is, you know, being, you know, drinking Jameson, doing Coke, and getting baked. It's or like, mercy. Yeah. You're on all three. Oh, like, yeah. It's like you're... Oh, yeah. Just, okay. It's like, <laughs> I was like a fucking puppet, you know? Like, whatever was taking me over at that time is where I was. Yeah. So, um, 
I wasn't blown out. Like I wasn't even crazy, but I did. I did enough of it. Yeah. <laughs> I did enough of it to like know that I was like, oh, okay, I'm back to let's do shots. Mm-hmm. There was one point, you know, I saw my buddy and I was fucked up, and I was like, he's like, you don't remember seeing me? I go, I remember coming into your bar, but he's like, oh. But that was, like, earlier in the day, and I hadn't, you know, done anything, and I don't think I had eaten either. That's the other one. So I was just all fucking twisted and not even had anything to eat that day. But, uh, yeah, I got attacked in a parking lot uh, waiting for my buddy, and I never saw who did it. They came from behind, and they and they stabbed me, and it's... You can see was it, it a robbery, or no. they just... Was it a... They think... They didn't. They didn't jump me. They didn't rob me. They didn't steal my friend's truck. It was a super nice truck, brand new. Um, they think it was either they thought I was somebody else, or it was a, or I like to say the case of mistaken identity, mm-hmm. <laughs> the old Hitchcock theme, um, or it was they think it was actually a gang initiation. Yeah. Which, if you look it up. Um, Sounds like it. I, I ended up looking it up about six months later, and it's pretty common. And a lot of gangs, especially, you know, uh, gangs that are race-based, you know, and, like, prison gangs, it's like kill someone, you know, jump someone to get in, get jumped to get in, kill someone to get this, you know, kill a white boy to get this. I don't know if it was a race thing. I don't really care. Like, that shit doesn't really bother me. It's just, it could have been a chick. I don't know. I've had chicks beat me up, so... It's like, you know, so I'm like, I, uh, yeah, it was, it was one of those, didn't realize it until after, like, a couple minutes later, I, you know, I was cleaning my cut up, and all of a sudden, it just started pouring out, and, yeah, yeah, it was a quarter inch from the carotid artery, there's, like, two scars, you see there's, like, a big one, that's a surgeon's scar, and then a little one. Whatever it is, yeah. that's where they stab me. Damn, that is the scariest place to get somebody. Yeah. I was, um, I bled out so much because I was fucked up and because it took so long to get to the hospital because my buddy drove me. I didn't take a, you know, a fucking $20,000 limo ride. So I, um, we came in the hospital and I had a big sweatshirt wrapped around my neck that was, that's like a tourniquet or whatever. Whatever, is a tourniquet? Is that it? And I was soaked in blood. I, I think I bled out, they said, over two, two pints or so. And I went in, and two pints of blood, because blood is so thick. It's not just like, two, oh, two pints of water doesn't seem like a lot. Like, two pints of blood's a lot. And I was soaked from head to toe. And I went in there, and the fucking the ER room erupted. They hit, like, a button, and I went into this room. And there, it was like the movie, TV show ER or Code Black. All these people trying to save my life, and I'm drunk and fucked up and telling jokes because that's how I'm deflecting the reality of the situation. And I finally kind of came to as I'm yeah. on a table, they're asking me to, can I cut this? Can I cut that? You know, your shirt, your, your jeans, your you know, your shirt, your shoes. And I'm like, I love these shoes. And I was like, ah, oh, these are my favorite pair of jeans. Don't get rid of them. I love these jeans. I have an awkward body. These are my perfect jeans. And all this stuff, and I just kind of like snapped out of it. And I came to, and the, the surgeon, there's two surgeons, and they were like, you know, uh, hey, can you work with us here? Because I was just being a fucking idiot. And I came to, and I was just like, I gotta, I was like, so they asked me all these questions. I told them, you know, my blood type, you know, surgeries in the past, if I'm, you know, uh, 
He's allergic to anything. All that shit. I just ran down the line. I was like a quarterback in the pocket, you know, with 30 seconds left marching up the field. That's how I felt. And I just rattled off everything, and I just stayed there with them. And then they're like, uh, we're not sure if the artery got clipped. Um, you bled out a lot. We need to do surgery, you know, perform surgery on you. We need to do a blood transfusion. You've lost a lot of blood. And I was like, I'm A positive. They're like, we know. You told us like five times. And I was like, all right. And then they put the mask on me, and that's when I just started crying and praying. And the, the, the last thing I remember saying to them was just like, please don't let me die. I've got too much to live for. I go, I cannot die. I have too much to live for. And like, you're in good hands. You're going to be okay. And I'm like, you don't understand. I was like, I can't die. I have too much to live for. I just prayed and cried and then woke up. And I was like, sitting in this room, all these people in there. I thought I was dead. I was like, fuck, is this, am I dead? <laughs> like, I'm moving my fingers. Like, like I remember in movies and shows, like, if you can feel things or stuff, if you get physically hurt in a dream, that means you're not dreaming, you think, or whatever. I don't know. But I just started moving my fingernail or fingers, tips, and stuff. And I started kind of just like squishing around. I'm like, all right, I feel my body. I see people, I can hear things. And there's surgeons, nurses, detectives in there, of course. And yeah, that was, I was like, okay, I'm alive. And I sat there for, in the hospital room for 12, 14 hours alone, just going through emotional fucking, not roller coasters. It was just like a roller coaster that just stayed really low. <laughs> That's where I was, because I that was just, I kept thinking, how did I get here? I'm a good dude. I don't hurt people. Like, I don't. You're hurting yourself, though. Exactly. You know, your you, guides. I'm gonna kill this guy, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I almost want to Karen him right now, but I'm not going to. Yeah. He's doing the same thing we're doing. I know. I'm like, it got intense, and I'm just like, okay. But. Yeah. Usha. We are all a community of love and light, anyway. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, kind of came to and cried and was like how did I get here going through all this shit and then the hardest thing in my life I think I've ever had to do was try to find a way to tell my parents that I almost died and I'm okay and that was that was the hardest phone call I've ever made and I've made a lot of bad hard phone calls okay so run me through this though dates wise yes what date was the attack February 27th I got attacked February 28th is when I decided I gotta quit this life what, 2019? 28th. 28th. Uh, sorry, it'll be three it. years this February 28th. It's my sober date. Wow. Yeah. So you decided, like, that's I, Right it. there. Cold turkey. I tell people my sobriety, I got lucky. Somebody forced me to make a choice. A lot of people have... Well, I mean, it's different with everyone. Um, but someone forced me to make a choice. Yeah, leap year. That's a leap year, isn't it? 28th? I, I don't know. So you got, like, kind of a, even a more, like, it was even more of a blessing. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it is or isn't. I'll have to look. That's a good question. Um, yeah, I just, I go, I was like, I need to, I can, I need to make a change. And it's just like, because I remembered, I do remember the night, but there were holes in it. Like, what happened? Like, who it was or not remembering that part and and I've you know I was in a really bad car accident when I was a senior in high school and my brain blacked out 
and the nurse told, the nurses were super cool they were like talk to me about everything and I asked them all these questions and they're like and I was like crying I'm like I don't know what happened I remember all this until that point and then I just I remember like running across the street to my friend's restaurant and they're like your brain will black out to protect itself it's common and I was like then I remember when I had this car accident my brain blacked out for like 15 to 30 seconds and I started thinking about because I was a blackout drinker I was like all those times I got fucked up and blacked out and there's a lot of them I've blacked out hundreds of times as a drinker so I was like okay this makes sense you know and you know the nurses said that they had uh, people come in patients come in that had been attacked randomly and then I told people what part of Pacific Beach in San Diego they're like oh that area's just got shit there that part of PB, that little pocket of Pacific Beach had problems and issues. And there's like drunk college students or drunk people in general. And, you know, everyone had their own uh, opinion on what happened. People that weren't there, people that knew me and didn't know me, people that wanted to, uh, what's the word, push their, their insecurity, their ideas onto me is what they were saying. There was like a... Like what? Like, people are like, oh, it was a drug deal gone wrong. Don't lie. I'm like, no, it wasn't. Oh, I Stuff see. like that. Like they were pe- projecting they're projecting. Back on you. They're projecting what they thought their insecurities onto me, what they thought. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, why would I go to San Diego like, to deal drugs when I was going down there to get away from it? I didn't want to do coke. I told my buddy, I want to sit at the beach. This is my goal. Sit at the beach, get baked, sip some Jameson, and drink Corona. That's all I wanted to do. Not the best parent, Corona Jameson. That's what I wanted to do. Because Corona's by the beach makes sense. I go, I just want to fucking relax. No, 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 I got this great Coke, man. I got this great Coke. Sorry, that's not like Joey Diaz. <laughs> I got this great Coke. Well, this is my buddy. He's this big fucking Southside Chicago guy. Mexican-Italian guy, so. Joey Diaz, essentially, but not as old. But he was like, no, this Coke is really good. And every, anytime someone says it, I'm like, bullshit, but I got to try it, you know? <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is really good. And it was clean, and that was the other thing. It was clean, and it was good. It wasn't stepped on Hollywood trash. So I was like, ooh, finally, something good. But, um, yeah, I, I made that decision, and I, I reached out to my old bar manager from Chicago that I worked with for, for years, and he, uh, he's a sober guy. We ran the biggest suburban bar that I ended up running before I, uh, when I worked there, it was just like a bartender door guy. And he was sober and I told him, I asked him about sobriety and he, and he gave me like really, really good advice on how to do it. <clears throat> and he's like, you need to be selfish. And I was like, to me, selfish is what I've been, sh- selfish when people use the term selfish it's shoved down their throats in a different way selfish in sobriety or selfish in bettering yourself is the most important thing you can do and it was I understood I didn't know what it meant when he told me and six eight months later I started to get it I'm like oh that means don't put yourself in situations if this protects me from staying sober and from this protects me to stay sober and to stay mentally fit, I will do that. And sorry, I can't go to your house party. I don't like to stand there and watch people do coke and drink vodka out of a bottle. That's not fun for me anymore. It's 
just like things like that. Um, no, I don't want people over anymore to come to my place and party because I no longer party. You know, things like that. Those are like selfish, positive selfish behavior, things like that, choices. You know, and I never understood the difference. You know, until I got sober and I was like, oh, this is called being selfish in a good way. Self-care, you know. So, that was uh, something I learned, you know, early on. And then boundaries, of course, something that I never understood because I drank. And boundaries don't hold up when you have a few drinks in. All those boundaries you set and all the things you say kind of just collapsed. Or for me, at least. And then I set boundaries and people didn't like it because I was cutting people off. Or I was like, you know, with staff, like, you're supposed to be here at 3.30, not 3.40. Like, like now, I have, now we're 10 minutes behind. Yeah. Now and that falls on me. Yeah, and that's a tough position to be in because then you get like blamed or yeah. like, oh, he's, yeah, he's yeah. trying to get me, you know. Yep. Yeah, I know that feeling. You know, and <clears throat> and I turned into a better version of myself, and that was my that became my ultimate goal. Uh, about a year or two ago, is to be the best version of myself I can be every single day. Not as much I try to or I, I hope I do it put that work in be the best version of myself myself I can be every day day in and day out until I'm dead and beyond and I go into the next world with Xenu the intergalactic warlord <laughs> that runs us all <laughs> but that's the honestly got the truth like that's I'm very open about it and I've I've talked to people about it and I've you know said it on social media and I'm like that's what I want and there are times where I won't be amazing I'm not running around trying to be some sort of fucking guru I'm not Gandhi. And I'm a dude that just wants to do better. So. Well, I, I'm i just really grateful that you came all the way out here for this. Because it's been like, I could talk to you forever. Like, to be quite honest. <laughs> like, I just, I just appreciate, you know, you so much. And just being able to connect with you out here in Austin. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, because I... Because I know that you lost your brother and your father. And yeah. It's just been, like, how did that really challenge, did that challenge your sobriety at all? Or? Uh, I wish, I wish I could say it did because it's, it would sound better. It didn't. I made this decision that I can't do this anymore. And I have to make that decision every day. Losing my brother, my brother relapsed. That's how he died. My brother re- relapsed off a of heroin. He'd been clean for over twenty. He'd been clean for over twenty years. Uh, but he did other shit. He still drank here and there and got high a little bit. And heroin was the bad thing. Uh, he relapsed. <clears throat> he was he he uh, he fucked his toe up at work. They were uh, not giving him insurance. Uh, they were having problem. They. There was this, he was going through this fight with his, the company he worked for, this battle back and forth. Uh, he needed pills for the pain, which you don't give pills to a fucking heroin addict, or previous, former heroin addict, anyone you know, uh, that had any problems with opiates of any type. Um, and then he started, he, he had a daughter that was one, I think, was, she's, I think she's two now, two or three. She was young, a new wife. They'd gotten married a couple of years before that. He had a hard spot in his life, and 
reconnected with some his old crowd and he just relapsed it happens you know yeah. um, he never he never sought the word seek sought uh, the correct way of getting and staying sober he just stopped kind of like me but I do I do touch base with meetings I just don't I can't do the steps it, it's it's a thing um, it's not my ego it's I, it reminds me way too much of Catholicism and Christianity yeah it's triggering for yeah. all people and it, it's way too much like that and uh, I don't mind the God factor I believe in a higher power I don't think it needs a name it's just something out there that's greater than us and that's I leave it at that and I talk to it every day and I embrace it with my medicine and uh, <clears throat> but he you know that was my second uh, loss in my family to drugs and almost my fourth because I almost lost my cousin OD'd 18 years ago 17, 18 years ago um, and then my other cousin that was with him uh, OD'd as well but my cousin Jason is still alive um, and then my cousin Corey he passed so one of them made it one of them didn't so uh, that was heroin and then a few years ago my nie my niece has, bat has been battling with uh, addiction for years she's 20 just turned 22 she had a couple of close calls um, she's I think better I don't we don't talk as much but she's young and I just told her I'm like you need to make a choice you want to end up like me and Jason you want to end up like Jeff and Corey it's your choice not mine mm -hmm. no I can't I can help you as much as I can but I can't save you you have to save yourself and I told her that she just was like, wow. And I go, yeah. I'm like, I don't want you to end up like them, but I can't make these choices for you. You know who to hang out with. You know who not to hang out with. But, uh, yeah, my brother, he, he just, he had a bad part in his life, and he was down on himself. And, you know, we were close, you know. I remember the last email I sent to him. And <clears throat> it was just, you know, I read it sometimes, and I'm like, I can't even can't even read it you know I can't, I can't. it's like too hard <clears throat> but he uh yeah that was it and that was a it was a, it was a it made me never want to do it you know like I don't ever want to do a fucking thing again I don't even want to have a beer again I do I drink NA beer I can drink beer with .05 it doesn't trigger me it doesn't affect me I didn't I didn't have my problem with drinking was the social aspect it was the party I love to have the party. I love to be the party. I love to run the party. I, love, I don't. I didn't necessarily like to be the center of attention, but I love to be the guy behind the guy that, that ran everything, which is what I'm doing now, what I want to do. That is more exciting to me than always being the guy on the bar. I was the guy that made... I was the guy that put the guy in the bar. I was the guy that did this. I was the guy that made that... I was the man, uh, the man behind the curtain. I was pulling all the strings, and I still do that. I just don't use booze anymore and I do it for comedy and not getting fucked up I have a question because I know yeah. you're an Aries yes. you're fiery people <laughs> yes so guilty um do you how do I put this in the words does the pressure of being a leader sometimes make it so you want to when you were drinking mm -hmm. does the pressure of knowing you have to be a leader almost like make it so that you need to kind of have that outlet. Does yes. that make sense? Oh, like, so much pressure, I need somewhere to release it? Yes, yeah. that was. 
And being in the bar industry, it was very common to be able to drink all the time, every day. The bars I worked at um, were usually privately owned, and I could drink on the job before, during, and after. And in some places, it was like encouraged and embraced because it was part of the culture. Um, and it was it be, it was an outlet, and then it became a crutch. Then it just became a habit. And I had problems with drinking and driving when I was in my twenties, and. After I lost, lost my license then, I was like, oh, I don't have to drive. I'm just going to get fucked up every night. I could take a cab. This was before Uber and Lyft. I was like, I could take a cab. I could, people, someone else is always driving. I'm like, oh, I could get fucked up then. So it gave me a crutch to do it. I just get fucked up if I wanted. And then I started, and then I usually lived clo- in close proximity of where I worked. So I could walk home or it was a cheap cab ride, so to speak, or whatever. So... I planned those things and it was like oh well, I can always just walk to work and it was just like and get fucked up and get home easy so it was definitely an outlet <clears throat> but it grew to more it just grew it became a lifestyle you know got out of hand and I let it get out of hand because <clears throat> I don't think I have the I tell people I go I could have a beer right now a beer tomorrow I could have two beers I could have three no problem you go out I got a glass of wine, I can have a couple drinks, I'll be fine. I just don't know when it's possible that I want a little bit more, and sometimes that second or third shot of Jameson, it's just like this just whoosh, that whiskey, just it's like, oh, I want to get crazy now. I want to do weird shit. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what goes through my head. I want to do weird shit. I don't want to just be, like, complacent with just hanging. It's like, Let's get fucking crazy. Let's do something wild. It's like that was me in Vegas. Every time I went there, I wanted to do something fucked up. I just wanted to like. There was like this like craziness inside of me that want to come out. There's a seediness about Vegas. Oh yeah. That feels like yeah. I dropped a dollar once in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> but I I I want to ask you because I know like it's kind of like. This is probably the wrong term because it, because maybe it's selfish or rude, but I feel like almost in a way we're kind of like these LA refugees. It's a hundred percent what it is. <laughs> like, I've been I've been saying that. I've been telling people we're we're refugees. That's we what are. it feels like. Yeah. And as long as we are, because we're not from there, and not a, it's, I don't know, that doesn't sound right. We're because people in Hollywood aren't from Hollywood. Everyone I met is from somewhere else. Yeah. Even if it's like the valley. It's an office, quote yeah. unquote. It's a yeah. large city office. That's a great way to put it. Um, but it's weird because when people go there, they try to be something or not. They pretend to be something or not. They create this facade that it's like everybody is something else, but they're all working 40 hours at a restaurant or a cafe or the fucking makeup counter and whatever. And it's like, you're... Don't be ashamed of the fact that you're not part of the 1%. Yeah. That's a working fucking, you know, SAG actor, actress. Like, it's okay. It's normal. It's, I mean, even these, these fucking, it's success, the successful people in Hollywood have to do 10 other things. They're not just an actor. They're, they've got their hands in a, you know, a restaurant or a, a, 
a whiskey or a food or weed or they've got you know they've got several streams of income coming in at all times they own property like Arnold Arnold's brilliant Arnold was a millionaire before he was an actor you know you look at his 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 uh like his read, read or listen to his story he was he owned a construction company with I think Lou Ferrigno I think it was Lou can't remember if it was Lou or someone else and he owned uh, like a small apartment complex and he was fucking loaded before he got into acting and uh, he wanted to challenge himself and at the time it's like a guy with fucked up English that was enormous you know you think of you know a, a camera trying to fit people in a, a scene and he's like this gigantic person like it's not gonna work um it's it's like it's you know he I've read his story a million times I love his story it's similar to my dad's that's why my dad you know immigrated here from actually from Germany to Australia to America um, after the war because he was he was actually tech, he was a, a real refugee <laughs> I mean we really are but he was uh, he grew up during World War II and you know had to escape his country I think twice uh, had to flee his country and then um ended up in Australia and then here so he uh, you know he came here and wanted to start a business and he did and it, and it was successful you know and it, he had his peaks and valleys with the business but ultimately it's still around it's been in business 45 years you know it's not like a conglomerate it's no it's not AT&T you know I come from a, a poor family but uh, not poor to say that but there's there were seven of us you know it's like it's fucking expensive Seven, at least seven million dollars you're gonna spend on just people. So, um, yeah. Now we are we are refugees. The working. Yeah. The working part of Hollywood, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the working. It's everybody. Yeah, you know? I mean. I knew I knew actors that had. They were in movies, gigs, and they would still have a bar job. Because <clears throat> they're like, well, that money runs out. Yeah, it does. You know? And the and the the way you know, especially if you say you get a commercial gig and you're non-union. At the end of the day, after taxes and agency fees and all that shit, you ain't getting fucking dick. Or even waiting for that check or yeah. waiting for that, yeah. You know that's why I stayed. Uh, I had. I wish one day someone wrote about it. I had one one of the most ideal situations there is. I got paid from the bar, and I got paid for shows, and I got paid for events, and I was like, I had, I had one of the most unique uh, situations out there, and I had a lot of people tell me that back then, and still to this day, and I did not take take it for granted, especially after I got sober. I was like, I, this is an incredible opportunity, and I embraced the fuck out of it, and I did not, and I was. I was very territorial with my room and my club and with my staff. And even with some some comics. I was I that was my family. I didn't have family out there. You know. I had one friend from uh, back home in Chicago that was out there. But my family became my staff. And I was I would literally I literally fought for that. Like physically and, and socially. So, you know, I I knew what I had. And I was like, I can't let this go. I can't lose. I can't lose this. Eventually, I had to let it go, but I can't lose this. So, 
Now that you're here, yes, entering 2021, yes, after this year of a uh, change, weirdness, yeah. What would you say, like, what are your main priorities coming into Austin right now? Uh, I want to help, you know, create a really cool vibe of comedy and entertainment. You know, I'm not just a one-trick pony, but stand-up. I worked, I ran uh, a club in Chicago for years, outside Chicago, the suburbs, huge club where I ran uh, all the bookings and the band stuff, and music and entertainment and everything. Um, and I did it at another bar for two years and I went back to that bar and I made a little, you know, I could say like, I just had a little name for myself in the community. And I did that in LA and I want to do it here, you know, and I want it, but I want it to last. You know, that's why I eventually want to own something that's mine that I can run 100% the right way. And not the right way, my way. And that might be right or wrong, but that's what, you know, owning your own business is, is running it your way. I learned all the ways to do things and all the ways not to do things. I've worked with some amazing business owners in the past. So it's like, it's time to be one. That was a big, big uh, goal I, was, I had set out for myself when I was leaving the Grand Canyon and I pulled into LA. I remember, like it was yesterday, there was an overpass downtown LA on the 101 and I stared at it and it was filled with homeless people and I said I do not want to live here anymore I'm done I have to get out of here and I was like it's Austin I've never been to Austin I've been to Nashville once loved it I've been to Phoenix a bunch of times loved it but it's like I gambled never been here never even driven through this town and you know I messaged Isabel and she's like you don't want to go to Phoenix do you and I was like I kind of do and I wanted to go to Phoenix because it was a crutch of L.A. Because mm -hmm. it was close. Yeah. And I could go back and forth. And then I was like, why? There's nothing going on in California and L.A. It's failing. The, the, the people that are still continuing to keep comedy and art alive, I absolutely fucking respect in every way, shape, or form. But I'm like, that's not what I want to do. What I want to do is continue to grow live entertainment. And it's not going to happen there people think I'm crazy. I'm like, it's happening here. It's happening in Florida. It's happening in North Carolina. Like, there's states that are open and have live entertainment indoors. So, why not be a part of it, you know? Well, so. I am I am super glad that you're a part of it because I'm super glad that yeah. I got to meet you. Uh, Finally, me. yeah. yeah. I know, it's <laughs> weird. It's weird how comedy works sometimes, yeah. you know? How the world is yeah but i wanted to say thank you so much for being here today of course do you have anything that you want to promote or social media that you want to promote yes social media you can find me at trevor kevolo uh t-r-e-v-o-r kevolo it's a weird one k-e-v-e-l-o-h um you can follow at the dojo of comedy Oh, God, here we go. So it's at the Dojo of Comedy, at the Dojo of Comedy ATX, and at Corrupted Comedy, and Corrupted is with a K. Um, I'll, I'll put this in there. I'm kind of uh, shelving the Dojo ATX because it's it was built to be a club or a room, not a brand. It's kind of both. But uh, Sam Tripoli, that's my dear friend and who I you know kind of ran the Dojo with, uh, we decided it just won't work as just a brand or a show so that's why I created Corrupted Comedy which is 
kind of what is going to be my brand here, just mine. Um, so that's where you're going to, if you go to Corrupted Comedy on Instagram or Twitter, but mainly Instagram right now, <clears throat> that's where you're going to uh, see all the upcoming shows that I'll be producing, running, whatever. And then I'm performing on shows around town. And that's just on my regular uh, Instagram, Trevor Kevalo. But, um, and then I, I haven't gotten all the details set, but um, I should be running hopefully weekly shows at the Green Jay. Uh, and that's on Instagram at the Green Jay Austin. And that's on uh, Red River Street. So I'm still working with the owner on dates and, and stuff like that. Can, um, can, uh, what do you call it? Like weekly shows. What day? We're still kind of ironing out a lot of stuff. So um, that is a lot of really cool, interesting things that I'm not going to announce on here yet because it's not 100% with stuff, but that's the venue I'll be working with, uh, and hopefully for. So, uh, yeah. That's it, I think. I appreciate you being on here. Yes. This will be out on Monday. Cool. And I'm just going to link everything in the yeah. show notes and everything. So. Yeah, link me, and then I'll, I'll like, re-share it and re-link it or whatever all that is, so... Thank you. Of course. Lots of love, yes. bro. Thank you so much. Of course.